Shall we bow our heads in prayer? Let us pray. O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And to you and you alone, may all glory, power and honour be rendered to. In the reading of your word, in the exposition of your word, in the hearing and the doing of your word, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts, O Lord, be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This Sunday, uh, we participate in sharing communion with each other. It is a sacrament of grace that is given to us that is common to all the churches throughout the world. And in our celebration of this one act together, we are united with each other. And through communion, we rejoice with those who rejoice, we mourn and weep with those who weep. Even this morning, as our dear brother Shen prayed for the churches in France, even as he prayed for all the churches that are struggling with COVID-19, our common bond of communion unites us in this one act together in our services that reminds us that we are not alone. Now, every first Sunday of the month, uh, Penang Trinity, as well as many other churches, usually celebrate Holy Communion. It is also known as the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. I think if you look at your NIV Bible, you see the title there, The Last Supper. It's called The Last Supper because it was the last meal before Jesus was betrayed. Or if you were to open our Methodist hymnal, you would find that it would be called a service of the table or we sometimes call it a service of the word and the table. So the preaching of the word and a service of the of the table. Other terms that is given to it is uh, that of the Eucharist. Uh, It may not be a familiar term for us, but it is a term that the Catholics and some Anglicans tend to prefer to use. We call it Holy Communion because the term means sharing of intimate thoughts and feelings of a spiritual nature, of a spiritual nature, dedicated and directed towards God. Let me repeat that. We call it Holy Communion, Holy Communion, because the term means it is a sharing of intimate thoughts and feelings of a spiritual nature that is dedicated towards God. And it is called a Eucharist uh, because the Greek word Eucharistas uh, is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Uh, verses 23 onwards, where the Apostle Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. That phrase, when he had given thanks, that's the meaning of Eucharistus, the thanksgiving. The thanksgiving, therefore, is at the centre of the service of the table. And later on, when we go through the service of Holy Communion, I hope you listen to that word when we say the great thanksgiving. So the thanksgiving is at the centre and the heart of Holy Communion, a service of the table 
where our communion elements, and for those of you who are in person, you can see our communion elements on the table, the altar table, covered. And for those of you who are at home, I hope that you have your communion elements prepared and placed before you on the table. That's why we call it a service of the table. So our communion elements are placed on the, el- uh, on the altar uh, table where they are consecrated. In other words, we uh, say the words of institution over it and it is shared as part of a divine service. And when we, mean, when we say divine service, there are words of liturgy that are shared to remind us and to exhort us, to encourage us and to rebuke us too. The verses of 1 Corinthians 11 continue after what I read earlier on to say, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So each month for the Methodist Church or Penang Trinity, we celebrate communion together as do a number of other churches and denominations throughout Malaysia and the world. And some Catholic churches who have daily Masses do it every day or at the end of every Mass. Or other churches do it once every weekend And some churches do it maybe once or twice in a year. The point is that there is no restriction or prescription uh, on the frequency or the celebration of Holy Communion. The only requirement is that when we do this, you do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Now for Pastor Shern and I, when we go on uh, our visitation rounds, Sometimes we are partaking of communion around 15 to 20 times. That's the number of homes and families that we visit sometimes. Thankfully, it is grape juice, uh, not wine, because, uh, so, so that by the end of the day, we can still remember Jesus Christ. Now, but I, I want to ask this question of you. What do you remember of your first participation in communion? Some of us partake of communion when we are children, some of us partake it when we first become members of the church, as, uh, as baptized members of the church. But what do you remember of that Holy Communion? And every time you take communion, do you remember your first love for Jesus Christ? Or is it ritual? You know, you take it, talan, you don't even taste it, you complain about the taste of the wafer or the juice it becomes a focus on the elements rather than on Jesus Christ. Where's your focus? Do you remember your first love? So let's look at the, word, uh, at, at the Lord Jesus Christ when he first instituted the Lord's Supper of Holy Communion in Luke chapter 22, verse 14. Now, I hope you have your Bible with you, uh, whether it's electronic or physical. Open it up to Luke chapter 22, verse 14. And there, let me first make the first observation uh, of this. The first observation of Holy Communion is that Holy Communion is Passover reframed by Jesus. Passover that is reframed by Jesus. It is the symbols of the Passover 
and its covenant meaning reframed or repictured uh, how Jesus wanted us to fully understand it. Now, let me explain what I mean. A picture frame, something like what we see at the bottom of, uh, of this picture or on your slide in the screen. Uh, a picture frame is what we use to have the right view or perspective of what the artist has drawn. And sometimes if you are a director or a producer of a movie, you'll see them uh, framing, uh, framing the view there to see this is what I want to focus on. So a picture frame helps us to focus on the right view or perspective of what the artist has drawn. And the Passover was a frame by which God's mighty acts through Moses, uh, which brought freedom for the Israelite ancestors from slavery to Egypt, was to be understood and remembered by God's people. So Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, was reframing that Passover event and the meal to help his followers have the right view and perspective of what God, the divine artist, was doing through not only Moses, but also him, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Why? In order to bring us freedom from slavery to sin as part of his divine master plan. So the Passover meal, or the Seder liturgy, and the various symbols and actions within the meal was an all-sensory reminder. When I say all-sensory reminder, uh, it's because they participated there and what they heard, what they smelt, what they tasted, what they touched, what they saw, and what they were thinking of, even as they said and sang things. These were all a recounting and a remembrance of the Passover event. Through it, they recounted the suffering of slavery in bitter tears, God's plagues on Egypt, and the dreadful Passover night, uh, the day when the Lord passed the houses of the Israelites that had the blood of the Lamb that was painted on their doorways. And through that, God prevented the destroyer from striking the people of God, the Israelites. But instead, it struck every single Egyptian house in the land. Now, uh, if you want to get the details of that, turn to Exodus chapter 12 and you can read that on your own. Or if you are in a family and you want to talk about this with your children, you can, uh, if, you, if you prefer, you can watch the DreamWorks movie version uh, called uh, Prince of Egypt. It's not a bad adaptation. I think it's available on Netflix. Now, moving on. What happens during Passover? The normal procedure at the Passover meal was to have an opening prayer, which was followed by the first uh, of four cups. Okay, I'd like you to remember that it is the first of four cups of wine and a dish of herbs and sauce. So this is pretty much what you see on your slide screen. Four cups. Although uh, it's just showing four cups there so that you know there is four cups, but really they, they just use the same cup. Pour, uh, pour it four times. And a dish containing several different elements of bitter herbs, sauces, and uh, you see there a, a bone. A bone of the sheep, or in some cases, they would have roast lamb. I know it's difficult talking about food when you all are here on a Sunday service. You're probably thinking about roast lamb sandwich later on. 
But let's focus on this. Now, they had this particular dish and every time they partook of it, they would uh, remind themselves of the story of the institution of the Passover. Uh, that would be recited. And then they would recite Psalm 113. Psalm 113 is a psalm of exaltation to God. It would be sung. And then a second cup of wine was drunk. And after a grace, after grace is said, which is thanksgiving, giving thanks for the food, for the meal, the main course of roast lamb with unleavened bread together with the bitter herbs and the sauces was shared. And after that, the third cup of wine was drunk. Psalms 114 to 118 are sung or recited. And finally, the fourth cup was drunk. Now, time doesn't permit me to explain all the elements and all the symbols in the Passover service during this particular service. So maybe next year, uh, during the uh, Nisan uh, 15th, maybe we should actually have a Passover seder and then we explain exactly what each item is. That's normally in March or April, just before Easter. But for now, I want you to remember the key elements and key symbols, which is the four cups of wine, the unleavened bread, and the lamb, the roast lamb in particular. And so let's look at what Luke chapter 22, verse 14 onwards tell us. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment, fulfillment in the kingdom of God. That was the original Passover, but Jesus was doing something now that would be a fulfillment of what that originally was. So he began the meal. Jesus began the meal to say that he would shortly suffer. We know on hindsight that he would be crucified and go through that suffering and death. But he desired to eat this Passover with them because the next occasion when he would eat this would be the fulfillment of the meal in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus took a cup of wine. He took a cup of wine, uh, and remember, this is the first or the second in the series of four that was mentioned earlier. And he reaffirmed that this would be the last occasion in which he would drink before the coming of the kingdom. So when you see in verse 17, he says, after taking the cup, this is the first cup. And he divided it among them. He says, I will not drink of this again until the kingdom of God comes. Remember, first cup out of four. So Jesus is reframing the Passover meal through the institution of the Lord's Supper because his actions are about to bring the fulfillment of this Passover meal from a remembrance of God's mighty acts to free the captives in Israel from Egypt's enslavement to a new remembrance, a remembrance of Jesus' mighty acts in freeing us from slavery to sin. It is a fulfillment in and of the kingdom of God and a realization of the real purpose of Passover and the symbols of the sacrificial lamb. So in the same way, 
that Passover was a remembrance of God's act of grace in setting the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt. So communion is a remembrance of God's act of grace in setting us, His people of God, us Christians, the people of God, free from slavery to sin. And for the Christian, and particularly of the Methodist denomination, we consider Holy Communion as a sacrament of grace, a means of grace, because Jesus himself instituted it. Jesus actually taught two things. One was baptism. He said, go and get baptized. And the other one was the Lord's Supper. But it was the Lord's Supper that Jesus himself did and taught and instituted himself. And so he said, do it in remembrance of of me. So as it is in Luke 22 and the gospel narratives of the Lord's Supper, Jesus Christ is the host. The pastors may preside over it and we would be the celebrant, but remember this, that when you partake of communion wherever you are, Jesus Christ is the host. He is the one who is serving you. He is giving this to you personally. It is He who invites you to his table. So later on, when you hear the communion uh, being shared, you say, Christ our Lord invites you to his table. He's the host. He's the one who is inviting you to the table. It is not a human activity. It is divine. It is God in his invitation. He desires to have this meal with us and as early as the Emmaus experience on the day of resurrection, which is recorded in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35, Christians recognize the presence of Jesus Christ in the breaking of bread. Something about us sharing communion together in what we do reminds us of Christ and He is present with us. And then that's the mystery of communion that He is spiritually present with us in the partaking of this bread together. So, through communion, they experience afresh the presence of their risen Lord and they received sustenance for their lives as disciples. So, as the church organized itself around this custom of the Eucharist, the thanksgiving, the characteristic ritual of this community and the central act of its worship is thanksgiving through Holy Communion. I can't tell you the number of times that this has been uh, a mystery. We go and visit people, some are very elderly, some they don't even remember who you are, they can't remember your name, they don't particularly uh, recognize people. But something about communion does a miracle in their life. They somehow remember it. And it is a remembrance of Christ being present with them in their suffering, in the time when they can't even remember you. They know that they are being remembered by God. So this brings me to my second point, that of uh, communion and covenant. You find this in verses 19 to 20. Now the, the text reads in verse 19, He took bread, He gave thanks and broke it, gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, 
which is poured out for you. Body, bread, cup, blood, poured out for you. Now if you recall when I described the normal Passover meal, after the thanksgiving, after the grace is said, after he gives thanks, the main course of roast lamb and the unleavened bread with bitter herbs is eaten. It is at this point that Jesus took bread, gave thanks for it, broke it and gave it to them. There is no mention of lamb because Jesus is the lamb. He says, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So it is at this point that an understanding of the Jewish symbolisms of this Passover meal helps us to view and understand communion rightly too. The unleavened bread, the roasted lamb, each cup of the four cups of wine, the bitter herbs and sauces of the Passover, each have their meaning that is now reapplied and reframed in the communion that Jesus institutes. This unleavened bread, you know, when we have bread, we actually tend to use wafer. But the bread is a symbol. And in certain parts of the world, we don't use bread. For example, if you come from a place where they don't have wheat or flour, they'll use rice. Uh, in certain parts of India, I'm told they use chapati or they use roti chanai. Something that denotes the daily thing that you eat. So this is bread, or for some people, this is my bowl of rice. The unleavened bread for the Jew sustained the Jews in the exodus after the Passover. Remember, they were preparing all this and they didn't have time for the bread to rise. So they collected together the unleavened bread. And this unleavened bread is the thing that sustained the Jews in the exodus after the Passover. It is understood also symbolically that the bread is God's word and his commandments. Now how about us as Christians? We understand Jesus as the word of God. We understand Jesus as the bread of life. In all this, symbolism is being brought together. And so when he gives thanks and he breaks the bread, and he says, this is my body given for you. Therefore, we understand that his body, his life, is the word of God and the fulfillment of all the commandments of God that feeds and sustains us in our present Christian life. Jesus' presence at the Passover meal as the Lamb of God, the sinless one, who offers up his body on the cross and the pouring out of his blood on the wooden cross for the sins of the world reminds us of the innocent lamb and the blood of that slain lamb that would be poured and put on the mantles and the doors of the houses over Passover so that God would pass over and the destroyer would not be allowed to touch his family with death. Each of these are being brought into a new, multifaceted meaning so that his body and blood, the sign of the covenant between him and us. Now let me bring this finally to this point. The four cups of the Passover were derived from four of God's promises when he says, I will. 
They are taken from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 7. You might want to note this down. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 to 7, where God promises in His covenant, four or five times He says, I will. The first cup is when God promises, He says, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. You drink the first cup. The second cup, when they take the second cup, is when they are reminded when God said to them, I will free you from being slaves to them. The third cup is when they say, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And the fourth cup is when he says, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Now reframed in the light of communion and Jesus' actions on the cross, the cup after the supper, the last cup that he takes, when Jesus does that, what he's saying through the acts of the cross is the cup of the covenant that we share with Jesus when he promises to you and to me and reframe this is what it means. I, Jesus, will bring you out from under the yoke of sin and death. I, Jesus, will bring you, will free you from being slaves to them, sin and death. That I, Jesus, will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you. This is the last cup. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of sin and death. Now I wonder how many of you, when you go through communion, when you drink that, you remember this. That Jesus says to you in His covenant, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Now, if I ever sat down and had time to dwell on that, it moves me to tears. That my God would deign to think of me and says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. That's the covenant of communion. That is what we're doing when all people throughout the world share that cup together. We remind each other we belong to God, that we are His people that He will take us and He will be our people. Now I shared earlier on that Holy Communion is sharing of intimate thoughts uh, and feelings of a spiritual nature towards, uh, dedicated towards God. And this is often done in a community of the faith. So families at home or all of us here gathered together, or even alone in another room somewhere, we are connected to each other through this spiritual unity. And so let me bring to the third, final point about communion. Communion is common unity. Community. It is a oneness. Now, I put there that as we do some... Uh, we are, as we, as we do communion, we are sharing in common unity of faith in God. 
And even as Jesus shared the Passover with his disciples, his close uh, connection, his inner circle, so too, we are sharing communion with those who share the same, same spiritual thoughts and feelings towards God. So communion is for those of the common Christian faith. It is not a magical ritual that can be applied for those who don't even believe in God for their own purposes. This is why when we ask, why is it that uh, your church, you say, we invite those who are baptized? Because when you are baptized, we are sharing a common faith, a common uh, feeling and sentiment towards God. Now, I've noticed that some people don't come forward for communion. I've noticed that some people don't come forward. And, and for a period of time, even before I came uh, to, to know Christ and all that stuff, uh, sometimes you feel I wouldn't go forward. Uh, some friends would say, oh, I just had my period, I feel unclean, I had a, uh, I've had a bad thought, or I've done something naughty and not nice, so <laughs> I don't feel particularly righteous or worthy. Uh, to come before the Lord. So some don't do this, or some don't do communion, or come and, and celebrate communion because they feel unclean for whatever reason, and or you know, maybe they've been watching pornography, uh, or they feel angry or depressed, or they feel that they are the worst of sinners, and they're not right with God. And so they feel unworthy because they're told, you must examine yourself, and if you partake it in an unworthy manner, uh, then you're bringing on uh, destruction to yourself. But I want you to understand this, that those who do this understand that communion was, that, that communion was instituted specifically for unworthy people, for sinners. In other words, no one is worthy. No one is worthy. So when you examine yourself and you think that I'm worthy, you qualify. If you think that you are worthy, that, that's when you are disqualified. <laughs> that is the paradox of communion. It is when you feel most unworthy, most sinful, most unclean, communion was for you. It is a means of grace for you. And I want to distinguish uh, that unworthy manner is very different from unworthy person. It is not that one needs to be worthy in order to partake of communion, for in that case, none are worthy. But as unworthy followers, we partake in a manner that is worthy. So the manner in which you do it needs to be worthy. What does it mean? What does it mean to partake of it in a worthy manner? So we look to the text because the text tells us the text of Luke chapter 22, verses 21 to 23 tells us, let me read verse 21. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. And they began to question among themselves which of them uh, it might be who could do this. And if you read a little bit further, they then ask this staggering question, who's the greatest amongst them? <laughs> now, they don't have the right attitudes, but what is the unworthy manner in this? The one who shares the table with betrayal and treachery against God or against another person at the table 
is partaking in an unworthy manner. Likewise, the Apostle Paul, uh, when he's teaching about Holy Communion, you find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Let me read that. It's a long passage, but it's important for us to be clear about this. It begins at the start of the chapter that says, uh, or start of the passage, verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. What meeting? Communion. The love feast and communion. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. So then, whenever uh, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So what exactly are they doing that is in an unworthy manner? Based on verse 17, it is in an unworthy manner because there is disunity amongst them. Why? Because the purpose of communion is to bring together all sinners as one before God. The purpose of communion is that we are all one before God in need of God's salvation. But when you have people in there that says, I am greater than you, I am more important than you, you don't deserve to be here. You are, you know, I want to kill you. Do you recall also in the passage where Jesus says to the man who comes to the altar, and when you come to the altar and you're about to present your sacrifice and your gift to the Lord, and you remember that you have something against someone or someone has something against you, go then, leave your gift at the altar, be reconciled to that man, then come and offer your offering. So to partake of Holy Communion in a manner that is unworthy is to come with murderous intent and the breaking up of the body of Christ. This is why when Paul says, examine and consider the body, what you are doing to the body when you are coming together to partake of Communion, that's where Communion is affected. This is why when some people say we don't want children to come because they and partake of communion because they might come in an unworthy manner, um, they are taking it as children are not worthy because they don't have the right mindset, they don't have the right attitude. But the reading of this is when you come with treachery, betrayal and disunity and you have hate and animosity against each other, that's coming in a manner that breaks the communion the common unity. So I ask you later on, when you come for communion, please be reconciled with each other. Because if you don't, and you come with anger and animosity, at least come acknowledging, Lord, I need your grace to overcome my anger and my animosity. Then you approach with the right manner, the right attitude, humility, service before God. So communion is broken when there is no common unity, no community and our attitudes to which each other break the body of Christ. Going forward, let me challenge you with these three thoughts. I want you to know that communion is a sacrament of grace. It is a gift given to you. It is an invitation by the host, our Lord Jesus, who is present 
with us. You can't rush into it on your own demands and neither are you the one to be served by others. Christ is the host and He invites you to His table. Secondly, be reminded of Jesus Christ and the covenant, the fourth cup and all four cups, that He will save you, that He will set you free from sin and death, that Jesus says, I will take you you will be my people, I will be your God. That is what communion means to us and what it meant to the people of the Passover. Be reminded of Christ Jesus and this covenant with Him and with each other and do preserve common unity, community, as we fulfill our covenant together. Let us pray. Dear Lord, forgive us when we often end up doing the wrong things. We know that we are not worthy, Lord, but help us to come to you in a worthy manner, in a way that is appropriate. Even as each head of the family prepares the elements, even as we have prepared the communion elements in an orderly way, help us, Lord, to celebrate with the right attitude of humility before you, and in covenant remembrance that you are our God, our Saviour, our friend, our Redeemer, and the one whose blood has been poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayers. Three application questions. I invite you to go back in your small groups, on your family later on, to ask <clears throat> how important are fellowship meals for you? You know, the, uh, the communion that Jesus shared, the breaking of the bread was a daily occurrence. Almost three times a day he would break bread. They saw it and he gave thanks. He broke the bread. So every time when we have a fellowship meal with each other, is the focus on the food or is the focus on the fellowship with each other? Second question. Why do you think Jesus chose bread? and the cup as his symbols. Uh, would there be a more appropriate cultural component? So for example, if you're from the Chinese culture, maybe rice might be the right one for you. Uh, in certain parts of Africa, maize or uh, plantain is what is used sometimes to denote what they survive on. It is the symbols, not the actual element itself, that remind us of Jesus. So have a discussion. What, what, is, uh, what will remind you better? And finally, <clears throat> how can you go about ensuring that you do not partake of communion in an unworthy manner? How do you go about re reconciling with each other before you come and offer your offering? As a reminder, Jesus said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And this cup is a new covenant in my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's prepare our hearts for communion as we come. And we invite Pastor Shen uh, to come up with us as we partake of this communion elements together.